A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin today, I'd like to direct you to the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast Network is a group of like-minded podcasters seeking a meeting of mind. And if you don't buy that, we're trying to pool our resources to make money. Cash dollars. Anyway, every month we usually promote one member. But this month we're actually promoting the Agora feed itself. The network has its own podcast, you see. Uh, we set up a podcast feed to host all of our crossover projects. And at this point, there's quite a few of them in there, and they're a lot of fun, actually. Uh, Tom Daly of the American Biography Podcast is wrapping up a series called The Exchange, where he interviewed all of us. And then there are the Fifty Shades of Great episodes, where we debate the relative advantages of two great historical figures. We did a bunch of episodes back in October for Halloween, and I've been participating in an ongoing series of episodes on the origins and characteristics of the modern state system. There's a lot of great content on there from a bunch of really talented people, so please go check it out. I have a lot of fun doing it, and I think everyone else does too. We also have three new donors to thank this month, which means I have come up with three new snarky regnal names. First up, Brian, who shall hereafter be known as Brian the Lodger. Up next, Susan the Sock Forger, an archmatron of the Whiskey Swillers. Last, but not least, we have Demetrio, holder of 3.141592 hostages. If you want a snarky rectal name, head on over to the website, wittenberg2westphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and go to the store page. There you'll find links to the Patreon page or to a secure PayPal donation. Now, I have to announce some changes to the snarky regnal name program, and the donor program in general. Our intrepid editor, Andrew, recently took it upon himself to horsewhip me until I let him fix up my Patreon page. To be fair to Andrew, my ineptitude with social media promotion is now costing him valuable ramen dollars. Anyway, Andrew's efforts involved finally setting up real actual rewards for Patreon donors. This means that I did have to make some changes to the Snarky Regnal Name program. If you already have a Snarky Regnal Name, or if you donated before, like, right now, which is, what, 8.44pm on February 15th? No problem, you get to keep your name. For the rest of you, the Snarky Regnal name now starts with a $2 donation per month on Patreon. If you donate at the $5 level, I'm happy to announce that you will not only get the Snarky Regnal name, but I am also in possession of some new hot-off-the-presses, Wittenberg to Westphalia brand stickers and postcards and stuff like that that I can mail to your house if you want. Uh, I haven't yet worked out how this is going to work. But if you email me with your address and letting me know that you donated, I can mail them to your house, I guess. I'm new at this. Anyway, I am really excited about these stickers and stuff, so I hope you are too, so let's get on this, you guys. There are other rewards in the offing, so go swing by the Patreon page and check it out. Uh, and there's going to be more coming. You'll note that some of them say to be announced soon. I'm still working on some other things. On a related note, I have given up on the model where I bill for each episode, and I have moved to a model where I bill for each month. In practice, this 
doesn't make much difference. Uh, if you've already become a patron, you probably won't notice at all, because I really don't know why, but basically the old way seemed to be more fair to me in theory, but in practice, Patreon made it really complicated and ended up just billing you every month anyway. So making this move to just billing every month will make no difference to you and makes my life easier. So yeah, now you get charged once a month, just like you did before, and I'm just going to sit angrily in the corner complaining about the modern world. Anyway, I've not yet worked out how all this will translate to people who make a secure donation on PayPal. I'm thinking that I will establish similar rewards, but maybe up the price a bit, just because the whole patronage thing, regular donations, it's really nice for Ben. It helps Ben feel like speaking in the third person is socially acceptable. Ben likes that. So, we've covered a lot, so to review, the Agora Podcast Network feed is really great, so are all my donators and patrons. Thank you all so much. And but you listeners, you're great too. Thanks for being there. And for anyone who's interested in becoming a donator or a patron, I ha- now have more stuff to use to help thank you. And there's more on the way. But that has required some changes, and hopefully they're for the better. So thanks everyone for sitting through this long intro, and let's get on with it. Ladies and gentlemen, Zach Twomley. By the same route by which they, the Hungarians, had come to Italy, they returned, devastating a large part of Pannonia. They sent their emissaries deceitfully to the Bavarians to obtain peace, but really to explore the region. What a pity, for that brought the first evil and suffering to the Bavarian realm, which it had not witnessed previously. Therefore, unanticipated, they invaded the realm of Bavaria across the ends with a strong force and a large army so that, murdering and plundering by fire and sword, they destroyed in one day everything within an area of 50 miles, length and breadth. Quote from the Annals of Fulda Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hi, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, and I will once again be your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 28, meanwhile in East Francia. Today we will be leaving Italy behind and moving north to Central Europe, where the eastern rump of the Carolingian Empire was at a crossroads. The death of Arnulf of Carinthia threatened to plunge this amorphous political entity into the kind of chaos the rest of Europe was already experiencing, and the Magyars were, well, they weren't helping. Today we will cover the kings of East Francia between the death of Arnulf and the rise of Otto I. This episode is going to be somewhat equivalent to the mini-episode we did on Western Francia and their century of chaos. It's going to be a little thin on details, mostly to get us from here to there. Given the amount of ground we have to cover, I'm going to be skimping on some fantastic stories, but hopefully this episode and the one on Western Francia will tie nicely into each other and frame things up for the finale in Italy. The story of East Francia has moved in and out of the story we've already told, but as we reach the close of the early Middle Ages, it's important that we bring this story to its point of conclusion as well. Let us begin with Louis the German, son of Louis the Pious. As we discussed at length, Louis the Pious had three sons that ended up splitting the empire between themselves. The one who held the east was Louis the German. Louis secured his base of support there and expanded his boundaries to the east. At one point, he was driven from the empire by his brothers and father, but he took shelter amongst the tribes to the east and was able to come roaring back later. Louis and his brothers were constantly either in a state of rebellion against their father or at war with each other. 
It's fitting, then, that Louis' later years were plagued by constant rebellions by his own sons. Unlike Louis the German and his brothers, Louis the German's sons seemed to have gotten along rather well, and after their father died, the brothers took leadership of the clan by eldest brother, each having their turn, but without any of them really lording it over each other. This family harmony was lucky, as there seems to have been some sort of congenital vascular condition within the family. Almost everyone in this bloodline died young, often of strokes. So, Louis the German's three sons ruled in turn, the eldest being Carloman and the youngest being the now notorious Charles the Fat, who managed by luck to inherit not only all of Eastern Francia, but eventually the entire Carolingian patrimony. Unfortunately, he was not really up to the task, and was eventually ousted shortly before his death. As we've covered in some depth, power in East Francia was taken by Charles the Fat's possibly illegitimate nephew, Arnulf of Carinthia, upon the rotund emperor's forced abdication. Arnulf would become the greatest king of his time, although that might be a Disco's Greatest Hits kind of thing given that his seizure of power precipitated the final breakup of the Carolingian Empire. He was very popular nonetheless amongst his aristocratic peers, and with their loyalty secured he was able to command a powerful army. Perhaps as importantly, Arnulf was seen by contemporaries as the legitimate head of the Carolingian clan, despite his possible paternal illegitimacy, and this was seen to be the case even outside of his borders. Podcast footnote. Get ready for a lot of paternal illegitimacy versus political illegitimacy in this episode. Good times. End podcast footnote. The fact that Arnulf did not push his claims of direct lordship over the rest of the former Carolingian Empire had for the most part to do with his need to effectively consolidate his power in East Francia against threats both external and internal. Commentators in the Chronicles do express some angst and revulsion at Arnulf's parental illegitimacy particularly in Western Francia. Nonetheless, other leaders in Europe found it convenient to acknowledge Arnulf as a sort of moral leader of Europe on various occasions. Eventually, Arnulf had consolidated his rule at home enough to look further afield. Using the pretext of the ongoing feud between the Gadeshi and Berengar, he presided over three invasions of Italy, first sending his illegitimate son Zuitbold down, and then attacking himself. Fairly quickly during this process, Arnulf tipped his hand and had himself declared emperor by the Pope. Most historians think this was probably the real goal all along, but regardless, he could not enjoy his crown while Lambert still lived. Arnulf pursued Lambert, who waged an asymmetric war as he retreated into the Apennine Hills. There, Arnulf died of a stroke while pursuing Emperor Lambert. Those of you who have read ahead may note that the reign of Arnulf in many ways foreshadows the story of Central European politics for the rest of the Middle Ages, especially in terms of the relationship between Central Europe and Italy. But it should be said that his rule also typifies the political order that was emerging throughout Europe at this time. As the implications of this order will be fairly important to the story, let's take a moment to discuss it in detail. We've talked a bit about the importance of consent in the Middle Ages. Of course, the consent was not the modern type of democratic consent, either in terms of expression through formal political processes or in terms of its application to the mass of the populace. Instead, it was a broad, consensus-based version of consent, derived to the king, emperor, pope, etc., from the political classes, namely the large landowners. This may seem unfair to modernize, given the very small number of people involved, and to be clear, it was, by any rational definition of fairness, unfair. But from a practical standpoint, this system was very important for governance in a period where power and wealth derived from control of land, and where communications were painfully slow. By having a small core of powerful nobles that formed the core of his administration, a king could keep the administration small while effectively exerting control over large territories. The converse of these advantages was that the king only exerted control so long as these big nobles were on board. East Francia was the first polity in Europe to really explicitly take advantage of this system, and it was almost definitely not intentional. 
Instead, it was an evolution of the administrative system of Charlemagne's empire, which, as we've discussed, was attempting to recreate a Roman bureaucracy. As we have seen in Western Francia and Italy, the people appointed as governors in this system were gradually able to take control of all levels of imperial power within their territory, and so became regionally dominant. In Western Francia, this process led to chaos, as cultural, geographic, and political factors ran into the chaos wrought by the external attacks of Vikings, Saracens, the Bretons, etc., to undermine central authority entirely. In Italy, similar issues were present, but we should also factor in the long pushback by the dying Roman bureaucracy as a contributing factor to the chaos. But East Francia was, in many ways, virgin territory. As we know, quote, Germany was a frontier territory during the Roman Empire, and under Charlemagne, this was in many ways still true, even if the border had been moved a few hundred miles east. The real contribution of the Carolingian Empire was an odd cultural backwash, as the Germanic border tribes who had been busy destroying the Roman border in earlier centuries now adopted what they understood as Roman civilization and brought it to their eastern territories. And combined with the conversion and colonization efforts of the monastic communities and the church, and the many centuries of Romanization efforts under the empire beforehand, the result was a rapid cultural and economic growth, even as the western parts of the empire shuddered under the body blows of political chaos and invasion. It is easy to overstate this, as we will see in this and future episodes. Though this was to be true across Europe, local legal and cultural norms persisted strongly in Central Europe. But for now we should just know that all across the empire, a heavily Frankish upper class dominated, and this persisted after the empire's breakup. In the east, this persistence was particularly strong. At the same time, this Frankish upper class ruled over a whole variety of culturally dissimilar people, whose cultures also persisted. This persistence in both upper and lower classes leads to a chicken-and-egg question, which I have already discussed at some length in a previous episode, as to the terms under which political boundaries in Europe were formed. Were East and West Francia politically distinct because of their separate cultures, or simply as a result of the arbitrary political boundaries established during the Empire's breakup? As I have said, I am skeptical of a pure cultural differentiation theory Things just happened too quickly, and the aristocracy was too culturally similar for that to be the sole cause. It's not like people were consulting the peasantry here. But in Eastern Francia, at least, we can say with some confidence that the upper classes remained strikingly homogenous, even through the chaos that followed the death of Louis the Pious. Tying all these themes together is the stem duchy system that we discussed in the walking tour episode. Now, at the time of Arnulf, there were only four stem duchies, and they were not called stem duchies, and I feel the need to point that out. Saxony, Swabia, Franconia, and Bavaria were old tribal territories. Under the Frankish Empire, territories that were conquered were often put under the rule of only one or two people, and so by the time of our story, rule in these territories had come to be dominated by only one family. An exception was Franconia, which, being an early possession of the Franks, was held by numerous families with two dominant clans, the Conradins and Babenbergers. Franconia notwithstanding, it was these relatively compact regions, under the rule of a duke or count, whose leaders made up the core constituency of the kings of Francia in the years after Louis the Pious. Podcast footnote. One of my main sources for this episode, the Cambridge History of the Middle Ages, contains a page-long discussion of whether the aristocrats in question were called dukes, counts, or the old Latin title of dux, with an X. I assure you, hilarity ensues. 
There is actually an interesting discussion to be had here that revolves around which powers were delegated when, and how quickly decentralization proceeded during this period. Needless to say, this is far too detailed and fiddly a conversation for even this podcast, especially given that by the end of the episode, everyone was definitively a duke, no matter their actual title, and no one really knows anything for sure, other than that. In general, for this podcast, I've stuck to the term duke for the purposes of clarity. Even though this has sort of been an issue going through the entire thing, I feel the need to point this out here because we're talking about stem duchies at length. Just as a for example, the Gadeshi were technically marquis and not dukes, since they ruled a mark, or march, territory. But seriously, it doesn't matter for our purposes. Everyone was a duke. Okay? Moving on. End of podcast footnote. So by the time of Arnulf's rise, East Francia was, by modern political standards, a total mess. The dukes, who were supposed to just be local governors, were effectively little kings. It was understood that they owed loyalty to the king, and that that loyalty came with military obligations. But given that the dukes were effectively in complete control of their domains, the king's command was fairly limited in scope. In most domestic affairs, the king was simply first among equals, and his rules often only applied to his own lands. Militarily, the king was supposedly supreme, but he only had troops if the dukes sent them. His ability to compel troops was, of course, limited by the extent to which the other dukes supported him or opposed him, and so the difference between demanding and requesting troops was a very fine one indeed. But compared to the other political entities of the time, East Francia was a terrifying superpower. Under Arnulf, the Eastern Franks fielded large and well-trained armies that carried all before them. The difference between Eastern and Western Francia in particular brings us back to the issue of consent. In Eastern Francia, the Carolingian clan seems to have recognized early the importance of consent, and strove to make themselves well-liked by their peers. This explains, for example, the ability of Louis the German to survive multiple losses on the battlefield, and the increasing reliance on the positive opinion of church leaders at this time, even when this opinion messed up succession, as we will see. As a result of this cultural coherence in the Eastern aristocracy, the Eastern Carolingian branch was able to not only maintain consent, but increasingly a clear political legitimacy. By comparison, the clear failings of the Carolingian clan in the West cost them consent, without establishing legitimacy for anyone else. Without legitimacy, consent was much harder to obtain, and much easier to lose when you're getting your butt handed to you by Vikings. With these lessons in mind, let's return to the death of Arnulf. Arnulf's eldest son, Zweitbold, was a potential successor, but was widely known to be illegitimate from a parental perspective, i.e. born to a woman who was not Arnulf's wife. Despite this issue, for a long time Zweitbold was seen as the chosen successor. To some extent, this was due to the persistence of the Frankish lack of concern about these issues, but also because there were no clear alternatives, and because Arnulf said so. Arnulf had allowed him to carve out a territory for himself on the border between East and West Francia as a way to establish himself militarily and politically. Unfortunately, and despite Arnulf's own illegitimacy, the taboo against illegitimate succession was becoming strong. So, when late in his reign Arnulf's wife bore him a legitimate son, Louis, Arnulf was forced by aristocratic opinion to make Louis the heir instead of Zweitbold. At the time, this might not have seemed like a huge deal, but when Arnulf died only six years later, it became a big deal. Zweitbold would have been a good decision as a competent king. Sure, he wasn't his father, who was pretty good, all things considered, and he wasn't, you know, legitimate, 
but he was a grown-up with military and governing experience. His parental illegitimacy could have been made up for by his legitimacy as a grown-up human being who can make decisions. On the other hand, Louis was six, but was a parentally legitimate heir. The aristocracy chose to follow Louis. Some have suggested that this was a cynical move to allow them to duck a strong central authority, and this may have been backed up by Louis's counselors, who used to be Arnulf's counselors, who were thus able to maintain their hold on power by choosing as their boss a child. Most historians are not insistent on this interpretation, given the influence of the church in this time period, and I'm not going to insist on it either, it's just something that's out there and I thought you should know about. In any event, Louis was crowned king of East Francia and became known to history as Louis the Child. Rebellions and civil disorders began breaking out almost immediately, and so began East Francia's period of disunity. Thankfully for East Francia, it was not as long as West Francia's. From the moment of Arnulf's death, Zweitbold made himself essentially independent, but within a few years, his aristocratic subjects rose against him, killed Zweitbold, and put themselves under the rule of Louis the Child. This would be the pattern of much of Louis's reign. Problems would arise, someone in the aristocracy would take care of it, and Louis's counselors would arrive with the king to sweep up and take credit. Most of the rebellions that arose were, fortunately for Louis, not strictly speaking rebellions against the crown, but were actually feuds between or within the ducal families. This was fortunate for Louis because no one was actually out to get him, but in terms of the fortune for the realm as a whole, it's less clear because all of a sudden, everyone who's supposed to be making up your military is trying to kill each other. The principal feud was between the Conradins and the Babenberg, and this feud went so far as to involve pitched battles fought by ducal armies in which multiple heads of the two houses were killed. Of course, such feuds were still illegal, but the crown found itself unable to repress them. Even when the head of House of Babenberg was arrested by Louis's men and executed for his disorders, it was seen as part of the feud being done under the influence of a Conradin in Louis's entourage. Of course, none of this helped the situation I alluded to in the last episode, the Magyar situation. With the empire increasingly internally divided, and the Italians starting to learn how to make problems for the Magyars, the Magyars began heavily favoring raiding in East Francia, and came almost every year. Bavaria, which was on the front lines, was very nearly destroyed. The duke there is known to history as Arnulf the Bad, because in his desperation to stop the Magyars, he stripped the churches of wealth to raise money to fight them. Ultimately, this will pay off. As it was Arnulf who authored the first really convincing victory against the horsemen, this success came at the expense of Arnulf's reputation and relationship with the crown, as we will see. Several years passed in this manner, with the Eastern Francian aristocracy at each other's throats while they weren't dodging the Magyars. By now, Louis was around 18, and was getting old enough to start taking a hand in his own affairs. As the Magyars were the biggest threat to his kingdom, he focused on them, and eventually he was able to gather a massive army and lead it against them. All the ducal families sent troops to fight under the king, who was coming to his own to drive out the foreigners who threatened them all. The battle was, of course, a horrible disaster, and it seems that enough men were killed to hobble the efforts of the Eastern Frankish kingdom to fight the Magyars for a generation. Arnulf the Bad, trying to find a way to save the territory he had fought so hard to preserve, ultimately made a truce with the Magyars, which allowed them to pass freely through his land to raid further into East Francia. This did not improve his reputation with the church. Louis died shortly thereafter, in 911, only 11 years after his father. He had only really just come into manhood, and he had just lost a major battle, and he was ultimately replaced by one of his close counselors. But he had always been a sickly boy, and there's no suggestion of foul play in the records, so any suggestion of assassination is basically speculation. 
I will say, however, that if there was a suspicion of assassination, there would be a lot of reason for the chroniclers of this period not to put it in the record, given the importance that Louis the Child's successor would play in the future dynasties of the kingdom. All we get from the chroniclers is that Louis the Child died of despair at his inability to defeat the Magyars. While East Francia was no longer burdened with the Child King, it was now faced with another troubled succession. Louis had not had the time to have children, and the fates had now definitively turned on East Francia. The former territory of Zweitbold, perhaps wisely, chose to go over to the West Francian side, allowing Charles the Simple to move in quickly and make himself impossible to dislodge. This was the only success of Charles the Simple's reign. In the context of this loss and the unchecked Magyar raiding, the nobility of East Francia elected Conrad, head of the House of Conradin, to be the new king. Actually, his name is where we get the name House of Conradin. Well, anyway, Conrad was seen as a man with no little promise, being an experienced leader of a young and sturdy disposition. The chroniclers lament that he was not a direct, close relative of Arnulf, and therefore had trouble establishing his legitimacy, even though he was, you know, chosen in the correct way. This is often blamed for the course of his reign. From a modern perspective, though, a few things are worthy of note here. Conrad was not just a well-liked, experienced noble. He was the head of one of the two factions in a feud ripping apart the kingdom. And as a member of the late king's entourage, he had already used his position to further his feud. Furthermore, Conrad was from the western side of East Francia, being from the territory of Franconia. This meant his direct interests were distant from the Magyar threat. So inevitably, the Babenberg clan rose in revolt. Conrad's response was eventually to lead three expeditions against Charles the Simple and Lotharingia, that border area that had flipped upon Louis the Child's death. All three expeditions were failures, meaning Conrad couldn't even beat Charles the Simple. Meanwhile, King Rudolf of the Burgundians shaved off a chunk of Frankish territory and began a long fight against the Swabian dukes. With the king busy with this stuff in the west, the Magyars were raiding pretty much unchecked. This in turn annoyed Arnulf the Bad, as you would expect, given that he was directly in the path of every raid, despite his truce, and ultimately Arnulf joined with the House Babenberg in their revolt, as did the Saxons. Unlike the feuds which had disrupted the empire under Louis the Child, this revolt was pretty much a genuine revolt against the crown, although it did take the form of continued opportunistic land grabs and revenge-seeking. Despite the opportunistic land grabbing, there were pitched battles back and forth between the forces of the crown and the re rebellious dukes. Amongst the most powerful members of the revolt was the Saxon, Henry, a cousin of Arnulf with a reasonably decent claim to the throne. But Henry ultimately mended fences with Conrad in 917, which was lucky because it was just in time for Conrad to ride out to battle with Arnulf the Bad in 918, where Conrad was mortally wounded. Once again, Conrad had no children, but luckily, he remained conscious long enough to weigh in on succession. The most obvious choice would have been his brother, but his brother doesn't seem to have been too keen, especially after Conrad said that Henry was the only person who could possibly unite the realm. So, of all people, Henry, who had so lately been in revolt, was chosen to be the king. Reportedly, the decision was conveyed to Henry by Conrad's brother, the only other you know, really logical choice, which makes this sort of a, an interesting story. And Conrad's brother found Henry repairing nets that he used for hunting fowl. As such, Henry is known to history as Henry the Fowler, this story would have tickled people at the time because it showed humility, blah blah blah, while also showing that Henry was a, you know, a good, sturdy, red-blooded member of the aristocracy who liked hunting. Of course, like most such stories, it was probably apocryphal. 
Much has been written about Henry the Fowler, because his dynasty, the Saxon dynasty, would essentially go on to found the Holy Roman Empire in the form it would hold for the rest of the Middle Ages. Henry himself didn't, but that's another story. The point is that there's a lot of material out there, some of it written by Nazis, but not a Nazi. Friend of the show Travis Dow's History of Germany podcast has a whole episode just on Henry. I don't want to bite Trav's flavor, and we're low on time, so I'm limiting this to pretty much just the essentials, but if you want more, I do recommend going out and checking out Travis Dow's History of Germany podcast episode on Henry the Fowler. Henry did not have an easy reign. Realistically, his legitimate claims to succeed Emperor Arnulf was not that much stronger than Conrad's, that it would have made a difference. Unlike Conrad, Henry was not clearly partisan in the major feuds going on. Although he quickly did align himself with the Conradins after his rise to the throne, previously he had been allied with the Babenbergs. Henry was also rather personally popular, and is famous for his rejection of the pomp attendant to his title. He famously eschewed any kind of coronation by the church. As it was, his title only carried any weight in Saxony and Franconia, in the northwestern corner of his theoretical territory. At least, at first. Henry set about fixing this by bonking together the heads of everyone who doubted his claim. Notably, he started in Swabia, the duchy that had been fighting off the Burgundians this entire time, and he swept in pretty much just as the Swabian dukes were collapsing on the ground from exhaustion, having just beaten off the Burgundians. So Swabia fell pretty easily, and that gave him three of the stem duchies and a huge chunk of the central territory of the kingdom, which was pretty good. Then they moved on to Arnulf the Bad, who, who held out pretty long, given that he'd been fighting off Magyars for the last decade. In fact, ultimately, Henry had to come to a deal with Arnulf the Bad, which gave Bavaria a fair measure of independence and power. But it did mean that Arnulf acknowledged Henry as the king, and brought Bavaria back within the kingdom. There remained the issue of Lotharingia, still held by Charles the Simple. Henry made a few attempts to take it, but ultimately just signed a treaty with Charles. This treaty was, of course, forgotten and tossed out the window when Charles died, and Western Francia was again thrown into total chaos. A few tough campaigns followed, but ultimately Henry brought Lotharingia back into his kingdom and reorganized it as another stem duchy. With this conquest, Henry had pretty much consolidated internally his kingdom. This process of consolidation was materially aided by the fact that the Magyars gave Germany something of a pass during the first six years of Henry's reign, which isn't nothing. They just happened to spend that time beating on the Western Franks and the Italians during this period. Their passage through Eastern Francia, if it happened, was skirting around the edges. I wouldn't be surprised if some heavy bribery was involved in all this, but I don't have any evidence of that. At any rate, this did not make the kingdom's borders peaceful. In the north, a brutal border war was waged with the Viking and Danish raiders. In the northeast and east, Baltic pirates and Slavic bands were a constant menace. For the most part, these were managed by the border lords, but in 924 the Magyars returned, and once again cut through eastern Francia like a hot knife through butter, in particular paying special attention to Saxony, the heartland of Henry's rule. Unlike Louis, Henry did not die of shame. He managed to buy off the Magyars, and signed a treaty for the duration of nine years. The treaty only covered Saxony, and anyway, that was the core of Henry's power. So while the rest of the kingdom was subject to continued Magyar raiding, Henry concentrated on a massive overhaul of his power base. Towns were heavily fortified and castles established. Laws were issued to expand the cavalry contingent in his army. This was, of course, key to fighting the mounted Magyar raiders, though we on this show know that the shift to cavalry in the Frankish military had been going on 
for quite some time by this point, with antecedents dating all the way back to Charlemagne, but Henry made it a priority number one, and to train his new army, Henry led them on repeated campaigns against the Slavs, incidentally expanding his territory in the process. By the time the peace treaty with the Magyars expired, Henry had a hardened military corps backed by a heavily fortified home base, which is not nothing. In 933, Henry decided to utilize his new reforms and refused to pay his tribute to the Magyars. He called out contingents from all the German princes. Details of the resulting Battle of the Riad are thin, but apparently the Magyars invaded, attempted to besiege one of the newly fortified towns, and then when Henry showed up, they tried to withdraw. But they were cornered and forced to fight and defeated heavily in a battle. Much is made of the fact that the Magyars never came back north to Saxony, though it should be noted that Saxony is pretty far from Hungary, and it may just not have been worth the candle to go that far to have to deal with an effective army protected by castles and fortified towns. So, by the time of Henry's death in 936, Eastern Francia was well on its way back to coherence. At least, it was as coherent as it had been under Arnulf, more or less. The Slavs, Danes, and Magyars had been driven back, the Stem Duchy's feuding had been reduced to reasonable levels and there'd been some reorganization, and the Western Franks had been driven back to the borders held by Arnulf. Best of all, Henry left behind a healthy, adult, legitimate son named Otto. About him, even more has been said than about Henry, but that is a story that we will have to wait for the next episode to discuss. Today, we discussed the political history of Eastern Francia, and we covered a lot of ground. We talked about the rise of the Stem Duchy system, and how that impacted Arnulf and his predecessors, and how they made Eastern Francia the strongest polity in Europe. Conversely, the Stem Duchy system was also behind the chaos that ensued when Arnulf left behind a six-year-old son, Louis the Child, as heir. Just at this critical juncture, the Magyars came, and killed most of the military men of the kingdom. Conrad followed Louis and had no legitimacy. More damaging, he was heavily intertwined with the feuds that were ripping the kingdom apart, and that did nothing to stem them. One of the feuds led to his death. Conrad appointed a former adversary, Henry the Fowler, to be his successor. Henry was less involved in the feuding and more involved in knocking heads together than Conrad had been. He quickly consolidated his rule, reconquered territory lost to Western Francia, and began pushing back against the Danes and Slavs. A Magyar raid brought Henry up short, and he bought nine years of peace in which he reorganized his holdings in Saxony and led wars against the Slavs to train his army. In 933, he led an army against the Magyars and won a convincing victory. The land left behind by Henry was different than the one he had inherited. Beyond a newfound respect for the central government, the dukes of the kingdom now had a template for defeating the Magyars. The creation of fortified bastions and quick cavalry forces were probably happening anyway, but the brilliant success of Henry at the Battle of Riyadh made it clear that not only was the Saxon dynasty de facto in charge, they deserved it as well. This was the kingdom that Otto inherited, and he would go on to do great things with it. Alright, that's it for today. You've been listening to Wittenberg to Westphalia. I haven't said this in a while. Big thanks to Not a Surf for the theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. Catch you next time. I made Baby!
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.